Welcome to another episode of Twice Told Tales podcast. Today, we're going to talk to Ahmed Kabalo, CEO and founder of African Stream, a pan-African digital media, which is uh, totally based on social media. He has uh, been reporting on various political and geopolitical issues from different places of the world, including in Africa, in Venezuela, Iraq, Netherlands, and so on and so forth. Um, today, he's joining us from uh, Nairobi, Kenya, and we're going to discuss the developments in Sudan and in Africa in general. Ahmed, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. So maybe so, we could just get your opinion on what's happening in Sudan as a, someone who's studied it closely in the region. Like, how would you, how would you describe as an overview what's taking place? Hmm, uh, yeah, where to start? I would describe it as, in many ways, an inevitable outcome of a revolution that was really unfinished. So when the Sudanese people came out to protest against Omar al-Bashir's dictatorship, um, they, they allowed a situation, I don't know if that's the right term, but I'm going to use it anyway, they allowed a situation where there was just a changing of guard. There was uh, Bashir replaced uh, initially by a guy called Awad Ibn Nuf. There was protest against that, and then he was changed by Bohan. And then people tried to protest again, and then there was, you know, huge repression by the security forces. And then the protests kind of accepted this idea of a transitional military council that would that would make way for transitional civilian government however that never happened and it was clear that that wasn't going to happen because in sudan the main industries financial industries are controlled by the army so you have uh you know the agriculture imports exports controlled by the army uh, road constructions uh all of the major financial sectors are controlled by the army. And then, and the army is obviously run by Bohan, and then the rapid support forces control the gold mines, which is one of our biggest you know, mineral resources. Um, and part of the so-called transition to civilian government was there was meant to be a commission set up to dismember and disentangle Sudan's industries from these armed forces it was clear that neither of these guys were going to allow that to happen. Um, but what I find interesting is these guys had previously been closely aligned. They fought in the Saudi-led war on Yemen. So when Saudi launched its you know, genocidal campaign against the Yemeni people, it did it in a very coward-like manner where it used fighter jets from the sky but didn't want to get on the ground and fight the Houthi Ansarullah fighters. So they used Sudanese soldiers as cannon fodder. And in that conflict, Al-Buhan was leading the Sudanese armed forces and Hameti was leading the rapid support forces and they were fighting side by side. Um, and they also fought side by side in the Darfur region um, as well. And, and actually that's when, you know, they first became closely aligned with the with the Persian Gulf 
kingdoms of Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Now, if you were to ask me why the conflict has escalated recently, um, you know, there's many theories about what it is, a power struggle, a jostle for power, um, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it, it, in politics, it's, people can't ignore coincidences. And, you know, the United States had warned quite clearly against the building of a Russian naval base in the port of Sudan and warned that would, there would be consequences if a naval base was, was to be built. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised, of course I have no evidence, just speculation, I wouldn't be surprised if there are, you know, intelligence agents in both camps, you know, operating, doing certain provocations, knowing that it's going to get a reaction from the other side, causing this internal conflict because you know the the as part of the royal the naval base the russian federation said that it would only be built once it had been confirmed um by a civilian government so the best way to stop a civilian government from ever coming to power is have the two armed forces battle it out and you know destroy the country destabilization. Um, I also don't think it's a coincidence. Again, I'm not saying this is facts. I'm just saying it is, you know, speculative opinion um, that, that Kamala Harris, the US Vice President, had just visited Africa and just had the absolute worst PR trip that you could imagine. You know, she went to Zambia, she went to uh, Tanzania, she went here, there, everywhere, Ghana. And everywhere she went, you know, there were just sound bites denouncing her. In Ghana, um, the president at the time, uh, still the president, um, said that, you know, there's an obsession in America about China's role in Africa, but the obsession isn't coming from Africans, it's coming from Americans. Said that in a joint press conference while she's while she standing next to him. In Zambia, before her trip, uh, opposition leader, I think his name is Dr. Mbele, uh, gave a, a huge, like, well-received speech denouncing U.S. imperialism, denouncing the U.S.'s role in the region. And what was meant to be a trip to increase it, increases U.S.'s soft power in the region did the complete opposite. And now we have a situation where one of the largest countries in Africa is destabilised. Generals are firing it out. Um, and, you know, people are asking, what's the world policeman going to do about it? So it, in a way, it once again projects U.S. power as a way of like helping to, you know, solve a conflict and put things out and negotiate ceasefire. So it, it, the Sudan conflict has been a very convenient conflict to happen at a time when, you know, the U.S.'s reputation in Africa or its soft power in Africa seem to be at an all-time low. Yeah, that's really interesting um, how they are losing, they seem to be losing a country a week now in Africa. I just read that the DRC is now um, planning to sort of shift its uh, international like security focus to Russia uh, rather than it's been traditionally uh, European and American centered so that's a that's a huge step drc has a, a large 
amount of mineral resources for the African continent. So, um, and uh, I think what you were saying about the about the port deal in Sudan is reminiscent of the Central African Republic's uh, um, uh, destabilization that occurred a couple years ago, um, where they had a trade deal with China that fell through because of the the onset of destabilization. Maybe you could talk, do you, do you think that there's, there may be some yeah. similarity in that? Yeah, I mean, you know, um, I don't know if anyone watches Narcos on Netflix, but Pablo Escobar, I don't know if you've oh, ever really? watched it. Um, my Spanish isn't great, so forgive me, but I, I, there was a scene that always stood out to me, uh, and, and the translation of it was, either you'll take the gold or you'll take the bullet and it was basically you know he was going to police officers on the border and saying listen if you can't buy your loyalty we'll kill you basically you know if we can't bribe you we'll kill you or we'll use violence and um i remember the central african republic you know it's obviously a a former french colony the guy who was in charge at the time it was actually installed by the French. I forget his name. I remember. I I remember reporting on, about it at the time, but I, I forget his name. Um, but then, you know, not all puppets um, are loyal all the time. You know, we have Idris uh, Deby in in Chad was a great example of that. A French puppet, but every now and again, you know, would try to do something independent that you know would be- actually benefit his country. Um, and I think that's what happened in Central African Republic. The Chinese offered them a very lucrative trade deal. And then after that, we saw the emergence of a, of a group calling themselves the Seleka, which was basically a, a, a comp- combination of mercenaries and Takfiri fighters that were not even from Central African Republic. They came through from the north, um, you know, raping and pillaging on their way down causing inter-religious conflict because they didn't attack the Muslim communities, but only attacked the Christian communities, which of course caused resentment. Um, it made it appear that the Muslims were siding with them, which, you know, from my research, they weren't. They were just, it was just survival. Um, and then since then, we've had, you know, conflict between the Christians and the Muslims in the country. The Seleka have left and uh, the country remains destabilized. And it becomes an example for other countries in the region that they want to follow suit. You know, if you want to chart uh, an independent foreign policy, if you want to chart, uh, you know, a an independent trade deal and leave us out of it, uh, you know, the French see it as after we've invested so much money. They mean what they mean by that is, you know, colonization and investing in infrastructure to take the loot out of the country. Um, so I do see resemblance. Obviously, you know, it, you're not going to get a French official admitting this on camera the same way you're not going to get a US official um, at the time saying, yeah, well, we've, we've destabilized Sudan because we're, on, we're upset by a Russian naval base. But, you know, you can look at the, the, the circumstances leading up. The US embassy in Sudan had been closed for 25 years because it listed Sudan as a state sponsor of terror uh, for inviting Osama bin Laden. Inviting Osama bin Laden, by the way, after he'd been in Afghanistan fighting on behalf of the US 
against the uh, the Soviets. Uh, but that's a story for another day. Um, but anyway, Saddam was a state a state sponsor of terror, so there was no U.S. embassy. U.S. embassy comes back, I believe, twenty second of April, twenty twenty two, and within a year within a year of the U.S. embassy coming back into the country, we have the worst violence that's ever been witnessed in the capital city. Um, you know, the U.S. ambassador, I think his name is John Godfrey, uh, said and warned that the U.S. naval base was a bad idea and it would bring bad consequences to Sudan. And now there's fighting and the Russian naval base seems like it's not going to be built anytime soon. Uh, so, you know, make of that what you will. Um, I don't want to take responsibility away from the generals because I still feel like, you know, unless you have greedy generals on the ground, this wouldn't happen. And these are greedy generals jostling for power, you know, trying to take control of the resources of the country. Um, Bahan represents the old guard, represents, you know, he has the Muslim Brotherhood um, links uh, and, and has many Bashir cronies still around him. And then Hameti believes that Bahan is threatened by his power and is trying to get rid of him. So it was kind of, you know, a preemptive, preemptive attack, preemptive response. Either way, the country has had seven coups since independence. I think it's second behind uh, is it Burkina Faso only. Uh, we don't need military men winning the country, whether it's Buhan, whether it's Hameti. Uh, and I think the problem that we, the reason why we're in this situation in the first place is because the revolution was was a leaderless, leader, leaderless revolution. There was no revolutionary theory. Um, you know, if you look at Cuba, and 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 uh, there was a lead. There was not only leadership, but there was a revolutionary theory, which meant that when they overthrew the Baptista dictatorship, they got rid of all of Baptista's generals in Sudan. They sent them over to Florida. Oh yeah. <laughs> All those yeah, guys it, to get back in Sudan, again. we thought we could have a revolution, but get rid of Bashir, but keep his generals in power. So it was, it was almost an in, in, inevitable outcome. If you have a, you know, if you have a, um, a revolution, the, you can't have the key components of the former regime still in power. You know, the Janjaweed yeah. was created, um, you know, by Bashir in 2003 to fight against, you know, a rebellion, you know, an insurgency against economic disenfranchisement, disenfranchisement um, in the Darfur region. Um, it was then used by him, you know, in 2014 to, to quell protests happening in Sudan. It, but then it then became a mercenary gun for hire group that was used in Chad, used in Libya by General um, Haftar, used in um, in the Central African Republic, in right? Central African Republic so is part of the Selec, of course. That's we're talking about. Yeah. Part of the, has connection. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, thinking that you can have a revolution, but have these forces in place, you know, 100,000 Janjaweed soldiers, a military can take, uh, controlled by the generals. Umar al-Bashir, apparently in Cobra prison, but many people think that he hasn't been in prison for a long time. And it's all just, you know, a hoax 
um, every now and again, you know, they put him in cuffs, take a few pictures. Um, one of his one of his uh, lieutenants escaped from prison, which then brought attention again to where Bashir is. And then the army was like, oh, he's not in prison. He's uh, actually in a in a military hospital because he's been ill. The same stuff that happened with Mubarak in Egypt. You know, exactly. he wasn't in prison. He wasn't in prison a long time before anyone realized he wasn't in prison. So, yeah, it's just a lesson for, you know, if we're going to for for African revolutionaries all over the continent about if you're going to have a revolution, you have to go all the way. You can't have remnants of the old regime still calling the shots. Well, you have to have a real revolution. That was what I would argue, that this Bashir thing was just a color revolution that was basically may have been just completely orchestrated for the for the consumption of Western intelligence. I mean, like they could just know that, okay, we have to have, you know, this outcome for us not to get the bullet and to keep getting the gold, right? As you said, from narcos. So like a lot of that dynamic isn't understood by the Western audience to these stories is that there's pressures from these generals who, uh, yeah, they have some responsibility, but if their choice is the bullet or the or gold, you know, you can't really fault them for taking the gold and not taking the bullet and doing the bidding of the whoever's pulling their strings, whether it's a Gulf state or, or a Western nation who's telling the Gulf state what to do. So it adds a lot of layers of complexity. And if you follow the Janjaweed sort of mirroring the imperialist wars in the region, um, you know, uh, you know, call Yemeni a Saudi war, but it was basically... If it wasn't for the U.S., that war would have never happened. Yeah, so, true. So it's an American war in many ways, and so is yeah. Libya was almost a hundred percent American war. If you if you realize the pressure that the U.S. put on France and NATO to get that thing started, so uh, I don't know. I I just it feels very suspicious to me where you have the Janjaweed bouncing all around to CAR to quell a Chinese trade deal to you know participate in this Bashir ousting of Bashir when he was not doing the bidding of the international community. Um, I don't the whole yeah, the whole thing reeks of the fact that there hasn't been a people's revolution. There hasn't been control. But it was it was Bashir Bashir post twenty fifteen was doing the bidding of the so called international community. He com- he's the one that committed Sudanese forces uh, against the Ansarullah Houthi fighters in Yemen, you know that wasn't a a anti-imperialist yeah. thing to do. That was a very much in line with the imperialist agenda of making sure that Yemen doesn't, you know, I think I believe it's the most populous Arab nation doesn't become a sovereign nation because of its strategic, you know, position on the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea, etc. You know, and obviously the the Ansarullah movement in Yemen was a very anti-imperialist, anti-US movement that, you know, clearly wasn't going to become a puppet regime. Um, But so, yeah, so Bashir, you know, people call Sisi a puppet, but the the Saudis desperately tried to get the Egyptians to support them in, in the conflict. And I think Egypt sent like a ship with three fighters on there. Like free people, free like soldiers. Wow, you know? wow that is the middle finger. Oh my yeah, God. you know, like well, well, Sudan, the Sudanese were doing the were, were the biggest casualties in the war, 
do most of the fighting in the war. Um, and yeah, you know, the I think people get confused about Bashir because in his latter years, as he knew the jig was up and he kind of heard the rumors that his generals were about to turn against him, he then went to Sochi conference in Russia, said that the US is trying to uh, is trying to break up Sudan. Um, he then went to meet with Bashar al-Assad in Syria. But these are just the, the actions of a desperate man in the last, you know, in the last few moments of survival. It's like Saddam, Saddam Hussein, sister, our sister will know uh, more than anyone. Saddam Hussein wasn't uh, an anti-imperialist figure. You know, he, he exactly. was, he was supported well, by Rumsfeld and co to, you know, basically destroy, destroy Iran, uh, use chemical yeah, weapons exactly. against Iran. But it, but once he fallen out of favor with the West, then he puts on the anti-imperialist cloak right. and starts chanting, you know, That's very free, true. free Palestine and free this and free that. But before that, you know, he was a CIA asset. I'm not saying Bashir was a CIA asset, but I feel like but he was he, playing into that. Yeah, he, he yeah, he, he, the, he was a, he was a person devoid of ideology. The Muslim Brotherhood, which is caught, which Bashir is part of, has been a cancer throughout the whole region. We saw what they've done in Syria. We saw the role that they played in destabilizing Libya. Um, you know, we even we, we we can even go back in history against uh, Jamal Abdul Nasser um, and the role that the Muslim Brotherhood played then. So the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, they will just go with wherever interest they can find. They'll be with the Persian Gulf states one day, then they'll move back to the Qataris and the Turkey, the Turks. Um, I think they're, they're, I mean, they they showed their hand in Syria that they're very much playing ball with the with Western uh, Western powers. Like they're, yeah. so I. And on that point, and on that point, under Bashir, he was facilitating Sudanese people to go and fight in Syria. Um, wow. In Sudan. Well, in Sudan, oh. you'd get these. Uh, I remember being there, like, you know, I'd go, I'd visit Sudan. You'd get all these propaganda adverts on Sudanese television with the Syrian flag, with free really? stars. Yeah. Really? Oh. So it's free like, wow. so, so it, you know, wow. I really, I, I always have to push back against this idea that Bashir was some sort of, you know, anti-imperialist figure. He was a a, wow. a, 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 a peasant that rose through the ranks. Um, and then, you know, it was um, Tarabi who was the ideologue that actually, you know, whether you believe in him or not, he was a person that believed in what he said. Um, but then when Tarabi became bigger um, than Bashir in the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, movement in Sudan, then Bashir... You know, put him on house arrest, detained him, and they fell out. And then in the last, you know, decade or so, it was just the actions of a man trying to hold on to power. And that's why he built the rapid support forces, uh, which, you know, in many ways, if, he, if, if without knowing the intricacies of it, it, does, it seemed suicidal to build a militia force, a paramilitary militia force in your country of 100,000 fighters. But he did it precisely to prevent a coup um, by his generals, not knowing that the rapid support forces would participate in that coup. Um, so they're basically young thugs. Like the rapid support support forces are not a 
for a highly skilled trained army. They're just, they're, yeah. I mean, what they did in Darfur is just atrocious. Uh, and, and, um, the conflict on Darfur came in at a very opportune time. And I think this is an important layer that we've omitted so far in this discussion. And that's the role of Israel. I think, um, having seen in, uh, up close and personal the referendum and the players involved there, having lived there and worked uh, in the region during that time, like Israel was key to that the part. Like it was George Bush with the, with the pressure of Israel to get that referendum thing kicked off because Israel really was concerned about Sudan at the time. And they one of their like geopolitical goals in, in Israel is to focus not on their border states, but on the states that border their border states. They have a whole a whole theory of, of projection, power projection, where they work on the borders, the states that border their border states. And Sudan was their main problem state in that time period. And so they they developed this referendum process. And the problem is the referendum process was going to be it was overseen by the carter institute it was overseen by observers to make sure it was legitimate and so they needed to make sure that this was going to actually be a thorn in the side of sudan and not a win and so what happened is at the time right before the referendum is when darfur kicked off so there was this peace they were having peace and like sudan was actually doing pretty well and then darfur kicked off and now darfur was the motivator for people to vote to drop the south in the north because they were like, oh, we, we're sick of war, we're sick of war. So this Janjaweed force, this RSF force that was being started ostensibly by Bashir, but I would postulate by outside forces, namely the U.S., was uh, and in maybe in coordination with or with the acceptance of Bashir was a way of, of ensuring that the referendum vote was going to go through and they're going to have a division because the northerners were just so sick of having all these conflicts. That would be my theory. What do you think about that? I think that there was a bigger factor in the split, and that was the death, some people say assassination, of John Gareng in a helicopter crash. Yeah. Um, Actually, that, and, 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 you know, in Sudan, in South Sudan, everyone thinks that the U.S. was behind that. Everyone thinks that the U.S. was behind that. Yeah. Because, because obviously, um, Goreng's vision was a new Sudan, new Sudan free of religious discrimination, free of racism, free of tribalism. So he had no interest of becoming the president of South Sudan. He wanted to become the president of Sudan and wanted to liberate all of Sudan from, you know, a fascistic regime that, you know, claims to be Islamic, but goes against all the principles of Islam by stealing the resources of the country and whatnot and discriminating against this group and discriminating against that group. So I think that, you know, the, the war in Darfur obviously contributed, but the way um, that happened, uh, kind of similar in Rwanda, where, you know, a plane yeah. crash, you know, there, there was a plane crash and it was blamed on uh, uh, the Tutsi rebels, the RPF, and then that caused this you know anger amongst you know the 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 hutu majority which then led to you know a, a, a horrific genocide but in sudan in south sudan there's this you know it was a very suspicious helicopter crash he but was, was well involved in the i mean they had already agreed to the 
the Arusha Accords, which was they had already agreed to do the voting and to divide the country. And Garang was, he was, I mean, I met him during that process. So he was, and he, so I don't know if that played a huge amount. It, it definitely played, I think, a key role in how Bashir interpreted like his security after, uh, at some point, and probably is what you, what you, what we notice in how Bashir went from being uh, kind of anti imperialist to being like basically the lapdog of imperialists because you yeah. saw how easy it is for the U.S. to just have embrace someone because the U.S. in in D.C. was embracing Garang as this future for Sudan because George Bush and Garang were meeting. George, mm. I mean, Garang was the future of of the new South Sudan of like getting rid of these terrorists in the north and freeing this part in the south to be free of the. I mean, it was this whole this whole like post nine eleven. Islama, Islamophobia and, and Garang in, in America represented like a way of saving these, these oppressed people in the South from this vicious Muslim Northern government. So yeah, I think he was presented that him way. murdered by the very people who were embracing him. I think Bashir might've been like, whoa. Yeah. I think he was presented that way. I don't, I'm not sure if that was his vision. Cause he, oh, no, know, no, I'm not saying it was his vision at yeah, all. I'm just saying in the he West. He was saying things like, for example, the Arabic should be the national language, uh, which was, you know, contra controversial now to say that in South Sudan. But he was saying that, you know, that this is a language that we all speak, even in South Sudan. We speak Juba Arabic, which is like broken Arabic, but we still speak Arabic. Um, so, you know, I feel like in, 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 in that situation, he's too understudies, Rik Mashar and Salva Kiir, along with US puppet in the region, Museveni, um, orchestrated that because, you know, soon after that, they presented it as if Bashir was responsible for the helicopter crash. Then yeah. the people in South Sudan went out and voted, I think it was 97% in the referendum. Uh, and then Sudan is now split. All of the previous oil deals that had been agreed with the Republic of Sudan and now reneged because now we have a new a, a new so-called independent country um and now you know all those all those deals have to be negotiated all those previous deals were negotiated with china now they're you know open again to business to you know to american capitalists and neoliberals um and then what and then much like what's happened in north sudan the two generals start fight the two politicians Rik Mashar and Salva Kiir start fighting each other over the yep. spoils of war who gets yep. to get who's gonna who's gonna take the reins of this big cash cow and I think that's kind of what you know there's a lot of similarities in in Sudan and North Sudan because it's the same thing who's gonna get the biggest share of this cash cow we know that there's money to be made we know that Sudan has you know gold and mineral resources and with there's all this opportunity, who's going to be the person that's going to benefit? Is it going to be Buhan and his generals in the military, or is it going to be Hameti um, as the new, you know, he had visions of being the new elected president of Sudan. Uh, weirdly enough, you know, don't ask me why, and I, I hate even saying this on camera, but Hameti was quite popular in Sudan, not because of, um, of, anything that he says, but because of this kind of underdog, he comes from one of the oh, marginalized right. regions, you know, Sudan's kind of seen as this place where all the politicians 
come from Khartoum, all of them come from the central. So this idea that there's this there's this kind of semi-illiterate guy from Darfur region and he's kind of rose through the ranks. He appealed to like a lot of people in the periphery regions. Um, you know, that's certainly not to me um, and my family for, 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 for the role that he played in not only the, the war in Yemen, but obviously against the Sunnis people in Darfur. How do you think the normalization process with Israel plays into this current uh, this current situation? Because I think that's another interesting difference between these two groups. Whether the you know the if you stand far enough back, you may find that the warring groups are both very connected to U.S. Western. I think, think it's but there is a difference in how they're talking about Israel. Yeah, I think there, I think it was a test for the armed forces, um, you know, normalize with Israel, show us that you mean business, show us that you're willing to be a Western Naki and we will back you. Now, the armed forces also provided support for the TPLF in their insurgency against the Ethiopian government. And everyone knows that the TPLF is a US proxy force that's been a stable US proxy force to in the Horn of Africa, used to destabilize Somalia, used to destabilize, um, uh, used to destabilize Somalia, used to de to attack Eritrea, destabilize Eritrea. Um, as soon as Ethiopia and Eritrea made peace, and the TPLF got marginalized, now the U.S. needs as many more reliable forces on the ground. And I think normalization with Israel was a way for Bhutan to show that he's in, you know, the US sphere of influence. Um, and I think, you know, part of Hermeti's attempt to jockle for power was to show that he was closer to the Russian sphere of influence. And that's why people call it a proxy war, because they think that the US's man in the, you know, real dog in the fight, although they allude to Hermeti that they supported him, um, as he, he tweeted something about uh, he spoke to the head of uh, Africom or something like that, and you know, tweeted that there was some sort of support there. But you know, my assessment is that they support Bohan in this battle, um, and they support Bohan in wiping out the RSF, and they support Bohan in having a perpetual state of of tr transitional military council, never ever moving towards true civilian rule. Because now that Ethiopia, which is one of the most populous countries in Africa, um, is now an independent country again um, and has close allies with another independent country, Eritrea, um, that 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 serves as a problem, especially considering where they're located, you know, on the Red Sea. And that would be I mean, Russia is probably still a little bit sad that it's not building its port yet. So. Yeah. I would imagine that they would be very well inclined to help an outcome that would favor them. So the idea that Wagner or whatever they want to call the Russian uh, Russian security presence security. there would be uh, it, it wouldn't be surprising to me, and it wouldn't be malicious. It wouldn't be a sign of like Russian imperialism or Russian expansion. I don't think Moscow's trying to turn Sudan into a Russian. Russian state or whatever the bizarre Western media has the idea of, of Russian geopolitics. It's just simply sticking up for a very, I mean, that, that 
having a port in that part of the world would be very strategically beneficial to Russia. So uh, it would, it would. I mean, I've got to be objective. I'm not a fan of any bases or ports in Africa. You know, we can't build right. a Sudanese. We can't build any Sudanese uh, military base in the United States. We can't build it in China. We can't build it in Russia. So I don't want any military bases in Djibouti from any, you know, outside force. But I understand the Russian perspective of if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, you know, everyone else. I think this is the first ne proposed naval base for Russia. Well, United States has military bases all over you know, if you look at the map, all over the Sahel, all over Africa, and it's just looking to expand and build more. So, you yeah, know, realist, yeah, so I understand, you know, the idea that Russia wants to protect its interest. But in an, an ideal situation, there would be no Russian naval base. There'd be no Chinese base in Djibouti. There would be no Japanese base. There would be no American base. There would be no attempt of a Turkish base and so on. Um, so yeah, just for to clarify that important point. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. There's genuinely need yeah, Africans for Africans, and I, that that's what it needs to be. But you know, uh, getting out of the uh, colonial mindset is a real, yeah, a real challenge. So, but uh, so we, yeah, we talked about like the kind of major actors in this conflict and what is going on. And can you also talk about if there are, if you believe that there are also minor actors, like for example, some people mention uh, Saudi Arabia or UAE uh, or Egypt, are they playing a role? And if yes, how are they playing into this conflict? Yes, so we'll start off with Egypt. For Egypt, you know, a civilian government in Sudan poses a threat to their own military dictatorship, you know, what they call the threat of a bad example. Um, it also obviously shares a border with Sudan, and it also has a constant, you know, issue with the uh, Muslim Brotherhood, you know, imprisoned Morsi, uh, Mubarak in his time, which many people think Sisi is a continuation of Mubarak, um, was there was an attempted assassination by the Muslim Brotherhood uh, I believe in Ethiopia, um, which was orchestrated by the Sudanese Muslim Brotherhood. So, you know, it's it's interest twofold. Number one, um, having a military threefold even, sorry, I forgot a major important point that I'll come to. Number one, making sure that they don't have a bad example um, on its border uh, that would influence its own population. Number two, um, making sure that you know that that the muslim brotherhood threat is you know eradicated uh, when the muslim brotherhoods were fleeing egypt many of them went to sudan um, now buhan abdul fatah buhan and abdul fatah al-sisi are allies that no longer happen suddenly muslim brotherhood can't find safe haven in sudan but number three and this is actually probably the most important one Egypt has this conflict between with Ethiopia over the Renaissance Dam. Um, you know, e Ethiopia wants to increase the electrical output of its country, even though it's a huge country with big population. Most of the citizens don't have access to the electrical grid with the building of the Renaissance Dam that will change. Um, but with, with the dam that will affect the water going into the Nile, 
the Nile ends in Egypt. So e the Egyptian uh, junta on many occasions has said that if this dam is completed, then they'll bomb it. I think you, Donald Trump uh, even said that if Egypt wants to bomb the dam, uh, you know, he's got their support. Um, and then Sudan is in the middle because obviously the Nile flows through Sudan as well. Um, uh. now, now, under Bashir, um, it seemed like Sudan's position was more aligned to Ethiopia. Um, however, since this, since Bahan came into power or took power, it's, it's done a U-turn and now it's, it, it, it supports Egypt's position in regarding to this, you know, dispute over water, even though it's to the detriment of Sudan. So in Sudan, every year, the River Nile banks flood and, you know, uh, flood and destroy uh, huge parts of our agricultural sector. But if we had a dam that could regulate the River Nile, that would actually, you know, be beneficial to 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 the Sudanese economy. Um, so Egypt wants desperately wants to have a client state in Sudan so that it, could, it would support them in any, you know, diplomatic dispute that they have with Egypt, uh, with Ethiopia, sorry, but also any militarily dispute that they have. Um, and I think that's what this is about. You know, Ethiopia and Eritrea are united, and it's important for, for Egypt that it has Sudan on side in case a conflict ever does escalate with, with Ethiopia. Um, is, there, is there any other questions to Tara? No, I think that's basically, but uh, just uh, in continuation of the previous question, is there anything okay. that you want to add about UAE and Saudi Arabia's yes. role? I just, thought, I just thought, I just gave a really long-winded answer about Egypt that I forgot about the other example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that was very interesting because I didn't, I mean, I've heard about Saudi Arabia's and UAE's, but not Egypt, so that was very insightful. Yeah, please go on, look. So Saudi Arabia is an interesting one, um, and it's a shorter answer, so I'll go there first. So Saudi Arabia obviously had a lot of interest in Sudan, uh, because like I said, Sudan was providing the foot soldiers in the war on Yemen, and Saudi was losing that war, um, and eventually had to, you know, agree a peace settlement. Um, but now the war has ended, there is, you know, a disagreement on whether how much interest Saudi Arabia still has. It has financial interest. Um, so the Saudi investment fund has put in billions and billions of dollars and wants to build up the port of Sudan, which again is the Red Sea. What's the other side of the Red Sea? You know, the uh, Saudi Arabia, Yemen, etc. So it has uh, financial interest and it has strategic interest because that Red Sea region also leads to the Suez Canal and is one of the most important kind of shipping routes in the world. Um, and then the UAE is, again, similar. It wants to build up, I think it's put $6 billion into building up, uh, you know, uh, the port of Sudan. Again, trying to protect its shipping interests on one of the most busiest, most important shipping uh, routes in the world. But it does, you know, um, it does have interest in gold. Now, I don't know, you don't, I don't know how much of a gold consumer you are, but for anyone that does buy gold, they usually go to Dubai. Dubai is one of the the leading, you know, markets for people that shop for gold in the world. And Sudan has plenty of gold. 
and the owner of the biggest gold mines in Sudan is Hameti, who is the leader of the Rapid Support Forces. Um, so there is, you know, just a classic neo-colonial uh, relationship of an African country has mineral resources and a farm power wants to extract the resources. Uh, at the moment, because it's done illegally, uh, not through proper channels, um, the UAE is able to get the gold at a very cheap price, robbing Sudan of some very crucial, you know, tax and, and, and funds. Um, so I'm sure he wants to continue that. And it also wants to, you know, get access to this, this vital kind of port, which is the port of Sudan. Okay, that's that's very interesting to know. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Chris, do you have any questions to ask? Uh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that uh, Hermedi was uh, was the uh, gold owner. Knowledge as the actual gold baron there. Um, that's that yes. may be yeah, that's impressive. It was, gift, it was a gift given to him by Bashir uh, to buy to to buy his lawyer to buy his loyalty. Um, like you can control the gold, just make sure that if these guys ever attempt a coup against me, you'll protect me. And then they attempted a coup, no protection. So it yeah. was a bad investment. Wow. That's wow. a bad investment by Bashir. Bashir should watch more narcos because it doesn't seem like he. <laughs> yeah, I suggest, I suggest all anti imperialists go, go and watch the narcos Netflix series. Tells you everything you need to know. Uh, all right, That's well. a good way to practice the Spanish too, apparently, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So we should ponder that. Thank you so much. It was uh, very insightful, and um, I hope we will have you back at some point to give us more insight and based on what is developing in that region. Um, I'm going to wrap it up. It's a great. It's a great uh, Instagram channel. I, I, I really think your content is, is amazing. Like, yeah, Thank I you. will, I will add the links to the Twitter and the Instagram account of uh, Africa Stream too, so people can follow. I'm a big fan of that page, and uh, yeah, you. I will and make TikTok. sure that to share the links. TikTok, our biggest, oh, on TikTok, the okay. biggest platform is on TikTok. We've got. Not to blow my own trumpet, we've got two hundred and seventy-three thousand followers on TikTok. So wow! Share. Wow! Yeah. That's good because it goes right wow. to the little kids' brains now. So that is the perfect platform. You get to like program some anti-imperialists from the cradle with TikTok. All right, everyone, okay. thanks for joining us on another episode of Twice Told Tales podcast. Uh, please like and subscribe, and uh, follow the links in the description to see more of Africa Stream content. Thanks. See you next time.